Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring our own pastoral staff and various guest speakers. There's so many wonderful pieces of worship that sometimes in and of themselves, each little piece we could do the whole time. And we would be filled up and spoken to and loved and carried in that moment, prayer and music and the word and sharing such intimate and wonderful stories. Let's go to God. Thank you, God. And we pray only that our hearts would be wide open, that we would be an open book to you, and that everything that we do and everything that we seek from you, that all of those things will be to build your kingdom and to bring your glory. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You know, um, it became associated, this whole idea of, you know, bringing somebody down through taxes. It became associated mostly with when people couldn't find any other way to make charges stick onto somebody who was a criminal. And we've heard this over the years in modern times, certainly, you know, the most famous one probably Al Capone. They couldn't make murder or prostitution or bootlegging or any of that stick, so they got them on tax evasion. And of course, there was that infamous um, desperado, Martha Stewart, who also went to uh, jail and Ja Rule and uh, Wesley Snipes, and, and it goes on and on. Always finding some place that, uh, you know, you can nail somebody. This particular uh, moment in Jesus' life was, it was different, but yet it was the same tactic. It was, well, we can't, we can't get him on anything else. He seems to be tripping us up because he'd already asked them, well, who do you think John was? And they went away just shaking their heads, wondering, oh, we don't have an answer for that. Every way we answer, we're going to be the bad guy. Jesus had, had just ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, and that in itself was this remarkable, I think I shared with you last time I was with you, that this was remarkably rebellious. He rode in on one side of Jerusalem on a donkey with the palm fronds and this and shouting Hosanna and King, while on the other side of Jerusalem at the very same moment, Caesar was riding in with his chariots and his pomp and circumstance and the paid people who were throwing flowers at him and and all of this. So it was no accident that Jesus rode in at the same time on uh, as a humble member of society on this side. And on this side, uh, I mean, come on, that's not an accident. That's a very intentional, planned um, uh, moment to say, who is king? Very intentional. So he had done that, and they were already wringing their hands over that because the Pharisees were in bed with, so to speak, with the Roman authorities, and they, and they were supposed to keep the Jews in line, and Jesus was kind of shaking things up a little bit. And so the Pharisees were wringing their hands, and so they 
they start assaulting him with questions and trying to entrap him and so that he they, their philosophy was we'll give him enough rope and he'll hang himself but he just kept hanging them that's just what kept happening so in this particular time he had already he started talking in parables and he told the parable of the bridegroom and the wedding party where nobody would come so let's get him off the street and he told the wicked tenants who killed all the slaves who were sent to give them the message and and it says in scripture kind of a funny thing it says the Pharisees started to think he was talking about them. It actually says that. I think that's so funny. They started thinking that he was talking about them. Well, imagine that. So then we come to this particular story. This is from Matthew 22. That's when the Pharisees plotted a way to trap him into saying something damaging. They sent their disciples with a few of Herod's followers mixed in to ask, Teacher, we know you have integrity. You teach the way of God accurately, are indifferent to popular opinion, and don't pander to your students. So tell us honestly, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, Jesus knew that they were up to no good, and he said, Why are you playing these games with me? Why are you trying to trap me? Do you have a coin? Let me see it. And they handed him a silver piece. This engraving, what, it, what does it look like? And whose name is on it? They said, Caesar. Well, then give Caesar what's his and give God what belongs to God. The Pharisees were speechless and they went off shaking their heads again. This is the word of the Lord. You know, what occurs to me is that this is seven verses. Seven verses that propel Jesus kind of into the stratosphere of debate and rhetoric. This is seven verses, except that this particular uh, challenge isn't uh, for a prize or a trophy. This particular debate, or this particular question, is motivated by entrapment, and it is positioned for betrayal, and it's, it's motivated and born out of a mean-spirited sense of fear and greed and superiority and arrogance, all of those things that the Pharisees had begun to believe their own hype, that they were somehow more important than actually than God because they were looking out for their own benefit and they were looking out for themselves and they ceased to be the voice of the people. Seven verses, I think, that take on all of those in a church that says we shouldn't talk about political things. We shouldn't talk politics in church. Now, all, I've been in ministry for 37 years, and I have heard this over and over again from different people. The church has no business talking about politics. And when we say that, what we're doing is we're, we're actually denying the flesh and blood walking around in the world, confronting the authorities and brutal establishment God who came to wrestle with us in the mud of humanity. 
when we say that. The very definition of the word politic means this. It's the process of making decisions that apply to all members of every group in society. That's the technical definition of politics. And if that's true, it means politics are issues about the treatment of the poor and the effect the marginalized and the effect the voiceless. It's about justice and equity and welcoming the stranger and being stewards of the earth. It's all the issues surrounding what it's like to be a human being in community in this earth together. That's what politics are all about. Now that word and what it's all about has been hijacked, certainly, and has come to mean such a burdensome uh, uh, just mound of bureaucracy and red tape and loopholes and who knows what all. But basically what it means is speaking on behalf of every piece of society. That's what politics is meant to do. And it's also seven verses, I think, that respond to people who, who say that we shouldn't, people in the church shouldn't talk about money because it's kind of uncivilized and it's personal. And as though money is outside the realm of God and God is just really too uh, religious to even be concerned about money. But that, none of that is true. Because in the scriptures, speak to us over and over again, not just about money, but about treasure, about that which replaces our allegiance and our devotion and our energy for God. And money certainly comes in to speak about that. The scriptures tell us to be alert and to be mindful about where and how we share our resources. The scriptures uh, say, remember what lasts forever and remember what just turns to rust and junk. The scriptures share, say, share what we have because it's all from God. And if you feel blessed, it's because you've been blessed in order to bless. And other scriptures say, stop worrying about what you own and concentrate on who or what owns you. So these are all things from the scripture, and Jesus is much more pointed than I have been here about money. It's not about us making any money. It's about us pooling our resources so that we can build the kingdom of God. This is seven verses in which Jesus once again cuts through the games. He says, why are you playing games with me? Cuts through the games and agendas and names them, calls them out, and then speaks directly to the heart of the issue. Directly. This is the most remarkable turnabout. So how do these seven verses speak to us today? It's interesting because this is the first of three debates between Jesus and various religious leaders. Not just debates, but this is the first of three where Jesus really comes on confrontational. It's time. He's, he's, in four short chapters, he's going to be on a cross. So he's, he's ready to say, we need a new way, and I am the way. So um, these debates are colored by earlier uh, conflicts. They paint a picture of Jesus 
as a threat to the religious and the political authorities and powers. So he's, al he's already that uh, uh, person that everyone cringes when he comes because they think we're going to get in trouble. He's going to be talking. And he's uh, a threat to the, all of those who are the most powerful religious and uh, um, political powers of the day. Jesus' inquisitors in this first episode are the Pharisees and what are called the Herodians. Now, the Herodians are an interesting group of people. And you remember Herod, don't you? They were, the Herodians were supporters of Herod of Antipas. But do you remember Herod of Antipas' dad? He was Herod uh, the Great. And Herod the Great was the one who was bamboozled by the three wise men. And the three wise men came to him, and he said, oh, tell me where the boy, where, where the child is. And they had a dream and went a different way. And then this same Herod the Great is the one that killed all the male children under, uh, around two or thereabouts and under, who lived in and around Bethlehem because he was afraid that somebody was going to be taking his kingdom away. And the angel came and told Joseph, now, ironically, go back to Egypt and live in Egypt so you can be safe. So he's run out by their own people. That was Herod the Great. This is his son. This is the one who seems to have spent much of his life running scared. He's the one that, first of all, locked up John the Baptist because John the Baptist was actually preaching against him and calling him out for uh, unsavory things with his uh, stepdaughter. But he didn't execute him because he was afraid of the people who followed John. So he was afraid of the people who followed John. But then when his stepdaughter asked for John's head in exchange for a dance, he was afraid that people would would accuse him of not keeping his word because he made the promise before she asked. So he didn't want to look bad, so he had John the Baptist's head cut off and served up on a platter because he was afraid of them. And then he heard about Jesus, and get this, he was afraid that Jesus was actually John come back to haunt him. And we'll see him again in Matthew, because this is the same Herod that on the night of Jesus' arrest, Jesus appears before Herod, and Herod asks him to do some of his tricks. Who on earth would support such a weak and selfish and brutal leader as this? But he had his supporters. We're told it was supporters of this leaders that the Pharisees had united with to try and take down Jesus. They have sunk so low. You know, you might expect the Pharisees who were fastidious observers of the law and Herodians who were collaborators with Rome to be at each other's throat, to actually be warring with each other. But in this one thing, taking down Jesus, they became collaborators. They hated Jesus more than they hated each other. I think it's interesting how much the so-called religious will do in direct violation of their own code and beliefs, of their own belief system, and who they're willing to throw in with 
if it means they gain power and wealth. I, I just think that's fascinating. What so-called religious people, what, what level they're willing to go to, to forsake all that they believe in. So they've decided to use taxes to trap Jesus. And as you can see, after a little bit of flattery, we get right to the heart of the matter, and that's the poll tax. The poll tax was a tax by Rome, but it was a tax that was collected by Jewish authorities. And the poll tax was, went directly towards supporting the troops that occupied Rome. So this was a very uh, controversial tax. There, were, there had already been uprisings and many people killed over this particular tax. So you see, there was more to it than just asking a simple question. Because if Jesus says yes, then he alienates the Pharisees, and he also alienates all the people who have been oppressed. And if he says no, then he risks being uh, uh, jailed and killed for sedition. So collaboration or treason, these are like the two... Uh, uh, points, the head of the dilemma. And the Pharisees and Herodians hope to stick Jesus with one of these. But rather than getting stuck on these horns, Jesus poses a counter question. Now, this is like the most insightful coming to the center of this whole thing that it just blows your mind. Not only is Jesus who Jesus is, but Jesus is brilliant. But what Jesus does is he always keeps the big picture. That's what he does. He doesn't get his big picture whittled down into a small, small slice where he can't see anything else. And so he always comes back to them with the big picture. That's, what, that's how he wins these things. He, he asked for a coin that's used to pay taxes. Now, the interesting part is Hebrew coins were made of copper, and Roman coins were made of silver. The only coin that you could pay the poll tax with was a silver coin. So not only did they force them to pay a tax, they forced them to use a coin that had a graven image on it of Caesar on one side, and on the other side it said, the Son of God. So they were forced to use a graven image, which was a breach in commandment one and two of the Ten Commandments. This was an insult, and meant to be insulting by the Romans. But he asked for that coin, and he says, whose head is on the coin? Now, when he asks that question, he's pointing out the likeness, and he's saying, there is a graven image on this coin. Do you understand that, Pharisees? Do you understand that you are pushing me towards this question, and you have this silver coin in your pocket, and, and everyone here is forced to have it with a graven image on it? What faithful Jew would have ever had a coin with Moses or Abraham's face on it? Never. Nevertheless, they failed to see that, this brokenness. The coin belongs to the emperor. So Jesus responds in terms of ownership. 
Well, it looks to me like the coin belongs to the emperor. His likeness declares his kingdom. The kingdom is marked by wealth and military strength and brutality. He is the personification of all the wealth and strength of Rome, and the tax belongs to him. By contrast, what can we say belongs to God? Well, with the tax, we know exactly how much is due, and the remainder is ours. But what can we expect to hold back from God? What do we say? Well, this is ours, and this is yours, God. The point is not that some things belong to the emperor and some things belong to God. That's not the point, because you can really get into trouble there thinking in such a dualistic manner. You have to be careful of that, as if coins and money were only matters for the emperor and never for God, and people were only matters for God and never for the emperor. This would be inconsistent with the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, according to Matthew. Every Jew standing there would have known Psalm 24. Do you know what Psalm 24 says? That was our call to worship today. It says, the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it, the world and all those who live in it. It's very clear, everything belongs to God. Not just humans created in the image of God, but also coins and emperors and Pharisees and Herodians and fish and water and bread and wine. They all belong to God. Everything belongs to God. Thus, we owe God everything. That means whatever we give to the emperor can and must be an expression of our allegiance to God. Now, here's where we're getting sticky. Because... How can it be, how can we be in allegiance to God if we're paying taxes to something that is not in allegiance with God? This is what they're up against. When Jesus states that we must give to God what is God's, their duty is to the emperor, but he resituates within a broader universal context our duty to God. That's what he's doing. And this a broader duty to God may not exactly annul the duty to the emperor, but it, but it massively reconfigures it. And so the, the crux of it is you can give the emperor his due, but only insofar as this is consistent with, indeed, an expression of your deeper allegiance to God. So Jesus, by in these seven verses, has given us a pathway through which to navigate politics within a deeper expansion of who God is. This doesn't offer us much in the way of concrete guidance, but, but look at what we do when conflicts arise between loyalty to God and loyalty to the emperor. What do we do? There are different things that different people do at different times. For example, we have conscientious objectors, people who say, I will serve my country in time of war, but I can't kill. I, I, I can't. It's, God says not to kill. I can't kill. So we have conscientious objectors. We ended slavery. It was a terrible civil war, but we said we can't. We, we, it doesn't match up. We have civil rights. We have uh, 
a few years ago, we had a divestment. Now, I know that's very controversial. And I'm not meaning to make it controversial. But what I'm saying is our pension fund divested itself because it has a code that was written in 1929 that says we will not invest in anything that has anything to do with weapons, alcohol, or tobacco, or with any kind of uh, machinery that threatens citizens that are not in the war. So we divested from a lot of companies. Everybody was up in arms about it. They're saying, well, that's not right, because we know people who are in that company. But the fact of the matter was, we were going back to this allegiance. We are uh, allegiant to God first. As in much of Jesus' teaching, he's really not giving us like a concrete rules to live by, but he's giving us a vision. It's a vision that reconfigures our loyalties. And, and ultimately, it's really up to us to sort out what this means in everyday decisions of our life. What does it mean? But we can't, we can't sort out our loyalties based on our opinions. You know, once in a while, you're not going to agree with God. That's just, that, that's just how it is. You're not going to agree with God, and you're going to somehow manipulate the gospel around so that it agrees with you. You will. We, each of us do that at some point. But right now, we're doing it at such a level that says it's all right to hate. It's all right to be prejudiced. It's all right to be a bigot. It's all right to oppress. It's all right to do any number of things to people because, and some religious people will say, because Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Or Paul says, you know, obey your government. So we've, we we're willing to twist it around, but we have a new vision. Hopefully, we're sorting out our everyday life, our political, religious, community life, because there can be no separation because it involves people. And we're sorting it out with the instructions and the tools that Christ gave us. What kind of instructions and tools did Christ give us? Well, blessed are the in the Beatitudes, whenever you did this to the least of these from Matthew, bring the children to me, take the log out of your own eye, love God and love your neighbor, love your enemy, go the second mile, turn the other cheek, give the needy the coat off your back, your will be done, Father, forgive them, go into the world, I will send you a guide and a comforter. Those are just a few of the way that we are the path, given the path to live in this very, very troubled world today. It may be enough simply to recognize that this can be a question. Given the constant temptation we have to collapse loyalty to emperor and loyalty to God, state and church into one. Or the equally constant temptation to separate them into two distinct spheres, as if one had nothing to do with the other. And it may be enough just to know that, God, that Jesus is rejecting both approaches. He's not saying that 
they're one, and he's not saying that they're separate. He's saying we have a duty and allegiance first to God. Of course, it's easy to be confused about our loyalties given the way the emperor rules our life in so many subtle and not-so-subtle ways because, as I said before, just four chapters from now, we see the ultimate expression of imperial might as Jesus is crucified for blasphemy and incitement to rebellion. But here's the thing. It's not the end of the story. This is not the end of the story because then the good news, our gospel story, kicks in. And our gospel story says the emperor may seem to rule the world and hearts, but Easter promises that God has the very last word. Always. Let's go to God in prayer. We thank you, God, for your love for us. We thank you that you have given us a path a way to express living in ways that are just and in ways that are fair and open and welcoming and loving. We pray for this world and all that it groans beneath. We pray that the child that it is pregnant with will be born in the likeness of you. And we pray all of these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.